Sunday. Trail. Righteous. Journey. Chase. Hunt. Righteous are you, O Lord, and your laws are right. The statutes you have laid down are righteous. They are fully trustworthy. My zeal wears me out, for my enemies ignore your words. Your promises have been thoroughly tested, and your servant loves them. Though I am lowly and despised, I do not forget your precepts. Your righteousness is everlasting, and your law is true. Trouble and distress have come upon me, but your commands are my delight. Your statutes are forever right. Give me understanding that I may live. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, let's see here. We got... Um uh, Burke gave me a prayer request just before we got started. M. Dunsowski, he had surgery on his stomach and he's had nothing but problems since. He's still in the hospital, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. He uh, he had some colon removed and no, 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 esophagus. Esophagus removed and put down further, and uh, it's just messed everything up inside of him. So Ed needs some prayer, and then. Um, uh, uh, my friend Becky had uh, found out that, uh, that uh, it's something I said to them a couple months ago is that uh, she's had just chronic problems for over a year now, her and her husband. And uh, uh, I said, you probably have mold in your house. And they had an inspection and they do. And the uh, company that's going to help them out is from Florida, land of mold. So um, they, uh, they hopefully that will take care of their problems. She's even lost hearing in her ears and everything. It's just terrible. So um, anyway, there you go with that. So we want to keep her and uh, her husband in prayer, Mark and Becky. And then um, uh, I just found out today that my friend, my old business partner for 20-some years uh, at the Thai restaurant, I didn't know, but three months ago she lost, lost the hearing in her left ear. And they have no idea why. They don't have any resolution to it. So if you'd pray for Vanna, that would be really great too because she's a sweet person. But, and oh, we, I didn't know if you want me to yeah, mention yeah. that. We got a prayer request for Jim's grandson, Hunter. And I won't get into the details, but just some bad personal choices in life that need to be uh, handled. So there you go with that. Got a couple prayer requests there. And then we'll go to this day in Christian history. Today is, I think, the 14th. I'm assuming it's the 14th. Yes, because we were on the 7th last week. And can we help you, ma'am? <laughs> sure enough. Yes, we can. Um, let's see here, April 14th. And don't forget that this weekend is Resurrection Day. So if you're not in church somewhere, you better be streaming online somewhere, but don't just be sleeping in bed. You want to make sure that you uh, remember the great deed of the Lord. Uh, tomorrow's Good Friday, and uh, I understand people want to argue over the timeline of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. It's very clear from the Gospels. You cannot make the mistake if you look up the term preparation day. If you look up that term, preparation day, because it is one of the few terms that is in all four Gospels, you can come to no other conclusion that Christ was crucified on Friday, resurrected on Sunday. Uh, people get very hung up about, well, three days and three nights means three days and three nights. The exact same idiom is used in the book of Esther. If you want the total breakdown on that, every detail that uh, I could think of on that, I have done a commentary on it. It will tell you. I've got the time of the week, of the Passion Week. I've got the events of the last day. He was crucified on a Friday. The word preparation day, or the term preparation day, very clearly identifies it as such. It is not a Thursday. It is not a Wednesday. Um, 
Yeah, I could go into all kinds of things, but they're in the uh, thing that I typed up. I should have done that today. I should have brought that in, and maybe it's in here somewhere. But um, uh, Christ was crucified on Friday. There's no way around it. I understand people want to throw in a second Sabbath and all that kind of stuff. None of that is reality. It is incorrect. So um, uh, Sunday, you want to make sure that you remember the great deed of the Lord that he accomplished for us. I say deed because Paul writes in, uh, I think it's Romans, uh, well, anyway, he writes that uh, as if the cross and the resurrection is actually one event. It's two events, obviously, but the way he writes it, it comes out as one event in his mind. He was crucified and he was uh, raised again. I, I can't remember the exact verse, but anyway, I mentioned it during the Roman study. It's just the way that Paul writes it out. It's one great event of the workings of God. Anyway, um, uh, what am I thinking of here? Oh yeah, 14 April. <clears throat> he served as a good master. Andrew Duncan was ordained into the Presbyterian ministry in, <clears throat> excuse me, Scotland in 1597. A difficult time to be a Presbyterian. In 1603, James I of England began a campaign to place Anglican bishops over the Church of Scotland, which was Presbyterian. In 1605, Duncan and five other prominent Presbyterian ministers were arrested for defying the king by attending a general assembly of the Church of Scotland in Aberdeen. They were imprisoned for 14 months and then banished to France. Oh my gosh. After about six years, Duncan was allowed to return to his church in Scotland, but soon fell into disfavor again, suffering multiple imprisonments and finally exile. And we think we got it bad here. Mm. Once while living in lonely exile, Duncan and his family ran out of food. With his wife and children in tears, Duncan prayed and then told them that God would provide. After his family went to bed that night, a stranger came to the house and Duncan gave, <coughs> I'm sorry, and gave Duncan a sack of food for the family. He left without giving his name. Duncan brought the sack to his wife saying, see what a good master I serve. Andrew Duncan and his family suffered great hardships for their faith but Duncan remained steadfast. Nearing the end of his life, he wrote his last will and testament. I, Andrew Duncan, set the, <coughs> excuse me, set the declaration of my latter will concerning these things, which God hath lent me in this world, in manner following. First, as touching myself, body and soul, my soul I leave to Christ Jesus, who gave it, and when it was lost, redeemed it that he may send his holy angels to transport it to the bosom of Abraham, there to enjoy all happiness and contentment. And as for this frail body, I commend it to the grave, there to sleep and rest as in a sweet bed until the day of refreshment, when it shall be reunited to the soul, and it shall be set down at the table with the holy patriarchs, prophets, and apostles, yea, shall be placed on the throne with Christ and get the crown of glory on my head. As for the children whom God hath given me, for which I thank his majesty, I leave them to his providence, to be governed and cared for by him, beseeching him to be the tutor, curator, and agent in all their adieus, yea, and a father, and that he would lead them by his gracious spirit through this evil world, that they be profitable instruments, holding their course to heaven, and comforting themselves with the glorious and fair to look on heritage, which Christ hath, hath conquered for them and for all that love him. 
Under God, I leave John Duncan, my eldest son, to be a tutor to my youngest daughter, Bessie Duncan, his youngest sister, to take care of her and to see that all turns go right, touching her person and gear. My executors, I leave my three sons, John, William, and David Duncan, to do my turns after me and to put in practice my directions, requesting them to be good and comfortable to their sisters, but chiefly to the two that are at home, as they would have God's blessing and mine. As concerning my temporal goods, the baggage and blathery of the earth, as I have gotten them in the world off God's liberal hand, so I leave them behind me in the world, giving most humble and hearty thanks unto my heavenly Father for so long and comfortable loan of the same. That was 14th April, 1626. How do you regard your possessions? Do you see them as something you own? Or do you see yourself as a steward of what God has entrusted to you? Don't worry about having enough food or drink or clothing. Why be like the pagans who are so deeply concerned about these things? You, Heavenly Father, already know, or your Heavenly Father already knows all your needs. And he will give you all you need from day to day if you live for him and make the kingdom of God your primary concern. Matthew 6. So there you go with that. Blathery. He had blathery to leave behind. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the baggage and blathery you've blessed us with, but we are uh, more thankful than all that you have sent your son Jesus to redeem us from this world. And someday all the things that we count as treasures in this world will all be gone. They'll all be forgotten forever as we stand in your presence, beholding the Lamb of God who took away our sin. Nothing will matter at that point except seeing his glory and yours through him. So, Lord, we thank you. We thank you so much for the chance to go into the word which tells us about Jesus, that explains him, that explains your love for the people of the world, how incomprehensible that is. It's so hard to figure how you could love people like us, but you do, and we thank you. And we just thank you so much for the gift of the giving of your son. Uh, we pray for this class, and we pray for those that we mentioned earlier, and for any others that we have uh, missed, that your hand would be upon them. And, and uh, we just uh, thank you that we can come to the throne of grace in our times of need. Thank you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. <clears throat> Let's see. Somebody said something. Okay. Oh, thank you, Sergio. He was kind enough to wait until we finished reading. Okay. Um, let's see here. We're going to be in Philippians 2.25 2. today. So did she get that right? She got it right. Look at that. Okay. I gave her a little hint last week, though. I put it up above there and said 2.25. So I don't know if she paid attention or just looked at my hint. But okay, 2.25, and you just start wherever you want. I'll start there. It's the beginning of a paragraph. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. Okay, this is very close. Yet I considered it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, but your minister, messenger, and the one who ministered to my needs. So very close. I think that one said I something, and this one said I considered. How did it open? I think. Uh, but I think. I think. Oh, well, considered is deeper, more reflective, yes, pondering. I, I, I will consider I'll that. Okay, um, let, uh, let's see here. Um, uh, would you come up here for a minute? I need your help. Um, uh, uh, Steve, 
not you. I don't need Steve up here. Kind of um, a general point there. I know it was, but I looked at him, and the the finger went out. But I looked at him. So um, uh, anyway, I just I, I need okay. you to come up here and help me move this. What? Hang on. Actually, I'm lying. I just wanted everybody to see that what you're looking that, at. That this shirt. It's so bright that I can't look back there. It's like beaming at me. Anyway, this is Steve. He's a wonderful guy. You often hear his name called or said something about him, and I thought I'd introduce him to you. Steve is a great guy. He's in, uh, actually from Indiana along with Rick, and they're here about half year each year, and they both never miss going to the projects, even though they are on, they're, you know, like they're snowbirds, whatever you call it, when you're not really on a vacation, but you're, anyway, they're always in the project, Steve and Rick together, uh, very humble servants of the Lord, they love to tell people about Jesus, and uh, it's a real testament, so anyway, I wanted you to see what kind of a shirt Steve wears, what's that? I'll never wear this shirt. Yes, you will, I love it, I was just picking on you because I love it, actually, I have one that I wore like that during a CG report, I wore it at the projects, were you there that day? Yeah, same color. See, I, I'm not picking on him. I'm admiring him. Yes, it's just very bright. Rick is slumping down in his chair. And yeah, kind of hiding behind. Rick him. is hiding. Okay, um, so here we go with the comments on 225. I just had to bring him up here, though. It, it would be wrong to not let people see that shirt. Um, okay, Paul has noted that he would send Timothy when the time was right to carry the message about his status to the churches. But before that time, and probably also carrying the this epistle back to them. He was sending Epaphroditus, okay? He pronounced it one way, I pronounced it another. I'm not really uh, sure how to pronounce a lot of these Greek names, okay? There are some that I'm pretty certain of, like um, uh, it's not Cephas, it's Cephas, okay? Um, when you speak about the yeah. apostle Peter. Anyway, so, and then you get some people say Tychicus and some people say Tychicus and you know, they're just, I have not taken the time to learn the Greek names, okay? The Hebrew, I've tried much more diligently because we're preaching out of the Hebrew, but if I pronounce something wrong, I apologize, okay? Um, uh, let's see here, and like the Hebrew, my Greek is totally, uh, it, it's, what do you call it when you learn it yourself? Self-taught, okay? So it's not really good. Um, I did take a basic Hebrew and a basic Greek, I had to, uh, maybe I didn't have to, but I, it was an elective maybe. But anyway, I took it at college, and I already knew as much teaching myself as uh, what you learned in the first year. You learned a little bit extra, but everything since then has been self-taught. And so uh, I was talking to somebody this week, though, about um, uh, the Hebrew. Somebody emailed me about uh, something that's going on, and they wanted me to coordinate with some other people on this particular issue. And I mentioned the Hebrew during the sermons is that I used to just go to Sergio constantly for his help. And now if he wants to confirm something in the biblical Hebrew, he will actually ask me because it's that different. And that's what I'm teaching myself on. So um, he'll say, I'll ask him a question. He'll say, well, I'm not sure. You, you would definitely know better than me <laughs> on that. So there's a big difference between modern Hebrew and ancient Hebrew or the biblical Hebrew. And the same is true with uh, the Greek. Uh, I had a couple guys that were from Greece. They were Greek speakers. They had very heavy accents because they'd only lived here a certain amount of time. And I wasn't sure about something from the book of Revelation that I was working on. And so I thought, well, these guys are Greek. And so I took the Greek and I printed it off and I took it to them and I said, can you tell me what this, uh, what you think this is meaning? And they said, we can't read that. So it's the same Greek, but it's completely different structure. And so they were like, 
uh, they came up with Limnin Tompuras, which is the lake of fire. He, he read it and he said, the can of fire, can of fire. He says, that doesn't make any sense. This is completely different thought today than it was back then. And the structure of the Greek is different. So obviously, um, uh, the pronunciation for me may not be right on these. And I apologize if I'm not pronouncing them right. So we'll get back to this. Um, Paul is sending uh, Timothy and probably along with me is sending Epaphroditus, okay? The name Epaphroditus is often associated with Epaphras, who is mentioned in Colossians and in Philemon. But this, once again, some people say Philemon, some people say Philemon, whatever. Um, this is not likely the same person. Epaphras was a shortened form of the name, but it was also a very common name. Based on the context of those passages, the two are probably not the same person. But whether the same or not, the name is derived from Aphrodite or Venus, meaning charming. The Epaphroditus was, or this guy, Epaphroditus, was being sent back by necessity, which will be explained in the coming verses. And for now, we are given just the following three descriptions of him. He was, according to Paul, one, my brother. This is not to be taken literally, but as a brother in Christ. It is an affectionate term which is still commonly shared among believers today, okay? So some people, uh, some scholars will say, well, it looks like they were related. Well, the whole Bible says brother, 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 and why they would suddenly jump into that one thing, that's not right. It's certainly an affectionate term and not a family term. Two, he calls him fellow worker. He obviously worked alongside Paul, as will be seen, especially in verse 30. They may have worked together in Philippi, or it may be that he was simply sent to work with Paul while he was imprisoned. Either way, he is given the credit for being a fellow worker with him. Let me see if this chair can go up some more. Yes, thank goodness. Um, three, he's called a fellow soldier. This is not the only time that Christians are considered as soldiers, carrying out military-style work in the process. Paul notes the same idea in Philemon 1-2 and in, in 2 Timothy 2, 3 and 4. So fellow soldier for Christ, he's a soldier, whatever. Uh, fall per, excuse me. Further, Paul notes that we are in a spiritual battle in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. If we are in a battle, then we are soldiers. These and other examples confirm and explain the term. Okay, some people don't like, uh, you know, using military terminology in their Christianity. And then some people argue everything against any military you know, connection at all. Like if you carry a gun, you're doing something wrong, etc. Doesn't bother me at all. The Bible doesn't speak about those things, okay? It speaks about in terms of soldiers and what we do with personal, you know, rights in the U.S. has nothing to do with what the Bible is speaking of. But they take all these verses out of context. Like Jesus said, you know, uh, he who lives by the sword will die by the sword. And they say, see, you're not supposed to carry guns. That is bad handling of scripture, okay? Paul is using a, a term soldiers here it applies to spiritual things, okay? And what we do with our own lives in this world is totally up to us, okay? He's speaking on a completely different level. Next, he says about Epaphroditus, but your messenger. He labored with Paul, but he was sent from Philippi to do so. The word is apostolos, and it is the same word used to speak of the designated apostles of Christ. Care needs to be taken with this word, though, and we've talked about this several times. 
The term simply means what does apostolos or sent apostle mean? Yeah, he's a messenger. He's a sent one. That's right. Uh, someone who is sent. In the case of Epaphroditus, he was sent by the church at Philippi. And thus he is an apostle of Philippi or apostle of the church at Philippi. He is not an apostle of Jesus Christ. If he was commissioned by Jesus Christ, then he would be apostle of Jesus Christ. So there's a difference. And as I've said before, because you will quite often, I'm not on Facebook anymore, thank goodness, but when I was, there would be people that would friend you and say, I'm apostle this or that, or I'm prophet this and that. Those terms are pointless, okay? The less terms you have, the best off, better off you're gonna be. You know, if somebody emails me, I would rather just have them say, hey, Charlie, it, I don't need to be called pastor. I don't need to be called, you know, whatever. If you call me pastor, I'm not going to say, please don't do that. But I would just prefer just being called Charlie because I'm Charlie and I'm one of you, right? And so titles to me are, are you know, there are times when a title should be used. You know, if you're doing a, a wedding or a funeral or something like that, you probably want to put that in there so that people know who this person is. He's not just somebody that you pulled off the street, okay? But at other times, especially when you're communicating with friends, Charlie, you know? Or, you know, what was her name? Kelly Carlin used to call me. What, did, what She had a term for me that she called them. Anyway, um, it was... I don't it, remember. Yeah, anyway, it was a term of endearment, but it was very nice, the thing that she said. Anyway, um, Christ sent certain men who are known as his apostles. Okay, we talked about uh, Epaphroditus being an apostle of the church at Philippi. Well, Christ sent his own apostles. Others sent certain men who are known as their apostles. There are no apostles of Christ today, none, okay, that, who carry the authority of Christ and the commission of Christ because Christ isn't here. The last apostle was Paul, and he even said as a you know person born out of due time and all that, he explained very carefully his authority as apostle, and he was given the right hand of fellowship by the other apostles. They acknowledged him as such. Even Peter in one of his epistles acknowledged him as such. So he is uh, born out of due time, but he was considered an apostle because he met the requirements of the apostle, which he was schooled by Jesus, which it says in the book of Galatians, he, you know, the Lord taught him. He was given revelation by the Lord, and he also saw the Lord Jesus. That's one of the requirements. We're not seeing the Lord Jesus today, okay? A lot of people claim they are, but they're not, okay? A church can send someone and call him an apostle, but there's no need for such a title. Whatever word is common to that church's language would be better suited than confusing the term apostle with that found in the Bible and speaking of the apostles or sent ones of Jesus. So if somebody says, I'm an apostle this or I'm an apostle that, you just say, well, you know, who, what apostle of what? And if who he says, you? I'm a, what's that? Who sent you? Yeah, who sent you? Okay, find out who it is and then tell him, well, you know, what's the point? Anyway, such titles are unnecessary and often only lead to a false impression of the status and authority of the person given that title. The apostolic era or the apostolic age ended with the death of the last apostle who was given that title by Jesus Christ. They had to meet certain criteria which are laid out in scripture, chief among which is, and I already said it, and I didn't know I was gonna have this in here, is having personally seen the Lord Jesus and been directly commissioned by him. Remember when he was on the mountain and he selected 12 people whom he called apostles, right? That's the only people he ever called apostles, okay? And then afterward, Paul was called an apostle. And in the 
in between the two of those events in Acts chapter 1, they needed to replace the apostle Peter. So they had a rounded out number of apostles. Peter. What? Or the apostle, uh, yeah, thank you, uh, the apostle the Judas. Judas. And then, um, so they needed somebody. Did I, I did say Peter, didn't I? See, I yeah. do it all the time. Anyway, um, <laughs> they had to replace somebody for Judas. And so what did they do? They drew lots. Lots. That's right. They drew lots or they threw lots or whatever they did. They, they had lots. And that's how they selected him. A lot of people will say, what was his name? Anybody Mateus. know? Matthias. Thank you. A lot of people will say that he was not an approved apostle. He was not a valid apostle, and Paul actually replaced Judas. That is incorrect, okay? Uh, if you hear that, you want to correct them on that. There's nothing to say that they did not have the right, and there's everything to say that they did have the right, right in Acts chapter 1. They followed along. They followed, let another take his place, it says. They went to scripture. They understood that Judas would die and that he needed to be replaced. And they did exactly what the Old Testament did at the time. They used lots in order to, you know, uh, divide the land of Israel and Joshua, for example, and give the tribes their inheritances. They did what was required because something had not happened yet. The giving of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2. That was in Acts chapter 1. The Holy Spirit came in Acts chapter 2. And after that, you never see lots used again anywhere in or Acts. Mateus, for that matter. Yeah, or you don't see Matthias, but you don't see any of the others either. You see a couple That's of them because it's focused. The Acts of the Apostles is specifically speaking of the Acts of Peter and the Acts of Paul. And that's very evident from the structure of Acts. Anyway, so... And, and doesn't it match the fact that there was the two grandsons yeah, that, that's the point I was just about to make, oh, is sorry. that there were 14 tribes of Israel. There were 12 tribes, but there were 14 because uh, the father Israel adopted Ephraim and Manasseh. So you have the 12 sons plus the two, and so you actually have 13 tribes, but there are 14 tribes. It's very complicated when you look at it, but the exact same thing happens with the apostles. You have 12 apostles, but then you have 14 apostles because you got two more to replace one. So it's it's the same pattern repeating itself. You have 12 plus 2 and 12 plus 2, okay? And then people try to, you know, then go to the book of Revelation, say, well, there are 12 gates and the names of the 12 apostles on the 12 gates or whatever. And uh, so they say, well, then it must be Paul. That means that, and it doesn't say that their names, individual names are on the 12 gates. It just says their names are on the gates. So it could be that all the apostles' names are on each gate. We don't know, okay? All we know is that there are 14 named apostles and there are 14 named sons of Israel, okay? The pattern matches, but it's not true that Matthias was not a valid apostle. He was. Anyway, that's a big diversion, but, and I don't know what got me onto that, but um, let's see. Messengers. Messengers. Apostles. Yeah, okay, apostles. They were, they met the criteria. That's exactly right. Having personally seen the Lord Jesus and been directly commissioned by him. Well, if the Lord, uh, it says in the book of Proverbs, and this is all in the Acts study. I've got all of this in there in the commentaries is that it says um, uh, the Lord determines the casting of the lots. Now, that's not the exact words, but when lots are the lots are cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. That's the, the proverb. So even that validates the fact that when they cast the lot after praying to the Lord, that the Lord validated it. So it was his choice and he was considered a, and why? Why did he meet that criteria? Do you remember what it says about him? Well, 
in Acts 1 about Matthias. Okay, we'll go there just so that I want to make sure I don't leave anything un. Oh, yes, he was with them from the beginning. He saw the works, and that means all the way from the baptism of Christ all the way through to his crucifixion. He was there witnessing the work and the deeds of the Lord. He met the criteria. Okay, that's exactly right. And so all of that is in the Acts commentary. So if you ever say, you know, I heard him say something, I don't remember what, but somebody is challenging this, just go back. The Acts commentary is online, every verse. You can uh, see it there. And right now we are in Acts chapter 7. Um, and you asked, I can't remember the verse, but what are we in today? 7, 6? What did we post? Anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, uh, a couple days ago, uh, Dr. and Mabel asked Burke about something that I posted at the end of one of the Acts commentaries. And we might as well say this now in case you're curious about this. There is a running timeline of the world that I did every single time it says the year, the year, or the age of a person, like Isaac was 60 when. Okay, every time that is recorded in the books of the Bible from Genesis through Deuteronomy, I recorded that. And it, I can tell you the exact year that that occurred, okay? It's a timeline of the world from Genesis 1-1 all the way to Deuteronomy chapter 34, okay? So if you want that, you just go to the Acts commentary, go back two or three days, and it will be right at the end of the commentary. I posted it on there, and you're going to need it if you're following the Acts commentary because there's going to be another thing I'm going to ask you. And if you don't have that printed off like I asked you to do, you're not going to know. So hopefully you printed it off. It's the running time. And you asked for that one time years ago. Did I ever send that to you? We were out at the projects, and you had asked, do you have that timeline? And I said, well, I don't have it finished yet. I don't think I'll send it to you because you did ask for it. Anyway, and I remember that every time I come to that, because I only go to it when there's a date in, and then I forget about it because I'm in the middle of work. I will, you remind me, and I'll get that to you. Um, seven, but eight. Acts 7, verse 8. All you need to do is go to the superior no, no, word. today. Oh, so it was probably 7, 6. Back to see yeah, it's probably 7, 6. It's not 7, 8. It's probably two days ago. So go back to 7, 6, and I'll bet you it's at the end of that commentary. Print that off, and it's the timeline of the world. Every event, if you want... Don't say it if you read the Acts commentary, okay? This is for people that don't read the Acts commentary. How long was Israel in the land of Egypt? 430 years. Wrong. No, it's half that. It is exactly 215 years. It was 430 years from Abraham to the Exodus. And that's very clear in there, but it's confusing because a lot of translations botch the translation. Okay, it was exactly 215 years from Abraham till Jacob going into the land of Egypt, and then 215 years from uh, the um, uh, enter of Egypt to the Exodus. Uh, there's a period of 400 years, which is also mentioned, and that is exact. Okay, it says you will be persecuted uh, and brought into bondage. It's two separate things, not one. And the persecution of Israel started when? It started with Ishmael and Isaac, okay? Your, your sons will be, or you will be persecuted, it says to Abraham, but it actually is right there. When Isaac was weaned, it says that Ishmael, you know, pestered him. I don't remember the exact word it says, but anyway, and that is the 400 years, and it's very exact. Another thing it says, which somebody just emailed me about today, I don't understand this, is that it says <clears throat> in the fourth generation, you will return to this land. You'll be brought into bondage and in the fourth generation will be. He said, why is that in there? 
because it's very specific. Because some, some families had babies really quickly, and there are six generations between entrance in Egypt and coming out in the Exodus, okay? But one special line is documented with their years, their, the names of who they got married to, the exact names and years. And it was the fourth generation when they came out, and that is the line of Levi, okay? It's very clear the fourth generation you will be brought out, and it happened exactly the way. All the other ones don't mention the number of years or the ages of the people. This one line does, and that one line is fourth generation. The Bible is so precise. It is so exacting. And yet people just try to tear it apart and say, see, this isn't true. Look at this. And they haven't done their study. So if you want that timeline of the world, just go to that Acts study, print it off, and it will help you with that. It'll help you find those things. And you were using AM. Anno Mundi. That means from the creation of the world, the year of the world. Anno year, Mundi of the world. Okay, so Anno Mundi. Um, if you ever want to see something really cool, wow, is this neat. A guy did a documentary on animals about 10, 15, 20 years ago. I don't remember how long ago it is, but it's very good, and I guarantee you it'll be on YouTube. It's called Animal Mundi. Instead of Anno Mundi, he, he modified it, and it's the animals of the world, and it was really, really well done. I'm glad you brought that up because it reminded me of Animal, animal Mundi or Animal Mundi. I can't remember how it was written, but it is very good. I just remember seeing it years ago, and I haven't thought of it until right now, but uh, I'll go and watch that maybe tomorrow if I can get the time. And, you know, I, most of you probably know this, some of you might not, is that you can take videos on YouTube or Rumble and you can speed them up. If you go down to the little gear at the bottom, it'll, you click on it and it'll pull up different things you can do, and one of them is to speed it up. You can have, or slow it down. If you want to listen to something real slowly, but if you want to speed it up to two times, it, a 30-minute video now only takes you 15 minutes. And it's a big time saver. So if you ever want, and I do that all the time because when I'm editing videos on Sunday, I've got them on double time. And so I'm used to listening at that speed. And so I'm it just, I'm used to it. So I watch everything at double time, except music. Music has to be at regular time. Okay, we'll go on. Um, Epaphroditus is called your messenger and the Animo Mundi, I think is what it's called. Animo, Animo, Animo. Anyway, it's great. Watch it. Um, Epaphroditus is called your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Paul's words. He was the messenger from Philippi to Paul, and he was the minister of Philippi to tend to Paul's need. So you can see that when the term apostle is used with him, it is not speaking of an apostle of Jesus Christ. It is speaking of an apostle that has a set purpose of ministering to Paul by the church at Philippi. Okay, life application. Use caution not to be swayed by fancy titles which people either grant or which they may claim for themselves. In the church, there are designated positions, and there are people which fill those positions. Actually, I should say who fill those positions. A person isn't a witch. A person is a who. Okay, so we'll correct that right now. But high and lofty titles often produce unhealthy levels of adoration. We are to adore Christ alone. Pastors, preachers, missionaries, priests, bishops, deacons, popes, elders, and so on are all just people who are not to be elevated above others. With the noted exception found in Scripture concerning granting certain workers double honor. See 1 Timothy 5.17 if you want to check that out. But this honor is for the work they do, not for who they are as individuals. 
okay? Remember that. You want to honor somebody for the work he does and not because of who he is because the only one truly worthy of honor and glory is Christ Jesus. The rest of us, we can be, good job, you know, you, he did a great thing, whatever, but the person himself is not the focus. It is what that person does, okay? It's just like being in the military. When you're in the military, you call certain people sir, or you can be in a lot of trouble. You, uh, when a flag car goes by, you better stop and salute that car or you are going to be in trouble, okay? That happened to me when I was in uh, basic training one time. I was walking down the road. I had no idea a staff car had gone by. And all of a sudden, this guy is like hovering over me. And he says, give me a 341. And I said, I had no idea. What I said, what? And he said, you didn't salute that car. I said, I'm sorry. I did not. I stopped and I saluted. I gave him a 341 and I never got reported. So um, 341, Air Force Form 341. You carry them around in your pocket. And if you do something wrong, they pull one and then they write your name on it and they hand it into people and they report you and then it goes up the line and all that. So uh, after basic training, they really don't use it anymore. Basic and maybe tech school. But I got a 341 pulled and he could tell I was as serious as I could be. I had no idea that guy was there. So that he probably laughed with the colonel in the car or whatever general or whatever it was, and then they just tore it up because they could see I had no idea he was there. But um, yeah, okay, you want to salute. And then same thing when you, it's, it's almost hard to even imagine this at this point in uh, our nation's history, but when you speak of the president, you are giving honor to the office right. and not to the person. Unfortunately, over the past election, because of what happened, you're, the two are so intermingled that it's hard to give either anything. Okay, I understand that, and you just have to kind of, you know, uh, decide on your own what you're going to do about that. But if I say anything more defined than what I just said, I'll be banned from YouTube, and I don't want to do that, but you know what I'm thinking. So um, anyway, uh, yeah, high and lofty titles often produce unhealthy levels of adoration. Um, let's see here. Oh, I already said that. So this honors for the work they do, not for who they are as individuals. And the same thing is true in the military. There are people in the military that are just not good people that are at all ranks, all ranks of the military, but you are to honor the position, even if not the person. Okay, so there you go with that. Um, okay, might as well go ahead. 226. Six. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Okay, we're getting there. We're going to have uh, something to mention about this very soon, but it won't be this verse. Since he was longing for you all and was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. So very, very close in wording there. Okay, speaking of Epaphroditus, Paul now notes two reasons why he is sending him back to Philippi. The first is since he was longing for you all. There is a strong emphasis in these words, which shows that he was truly homesick. He longed and continually longed to be with them. Okay, I have been away from home several times in my my life, and I haven't really been homesick, except one time when I was in Alaska for the summer mining gold. I really, really was homesick. I that was the worst I ever had it, you know, because you're there with a bunch of guys, and they kept rotating because nobody was up there to do the work. They they thought they were going to get rich doing not a lot, and it's very very hard work, and so. It was just one of those things, and then we had um, a very nice guy and his wife, but they had two Yorkshire Terriers, and they barked 24 hours a day, and he couldn't let them bark. He would get so angry, and he'd just start yelling, Casey, Casey, 
by the end of the summer, I just was beside myself. So I was very glad to get home to my family. But this guy, Epaphroditus, was the same. He was very homesick. He probably had a couple Yorkshire Terriers around him, and they just drove him crazy. Anyway, um, he longed to be with his people. Secondly, he was distressed. This is Paul's words. Was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. This second reason probably only exacerbated the longing of the first. Like me, being constantly tormented with the guy yelling at the dogs, it just, there's things that will set you off. And at that point, it just makes you want to be home all the more. It had been reported to them that he was sick. As we will see in the next verse, it wasn't just something simple like a cold, but something really life-threatening. Without a second report, which is now being written by Paul, their emotions would be running high. This caused his, uh, yeah, it caused his, Epaphroditus's, to run high as well. Because he knows that they're worried about him, now he's getting all bent out of shape as well. You can see it's just one. I was at the bank today, and I asked the girl, just because we're just standing there talking, and I said, which is worse? Is it the um, drive up? Because one girl always does the drive up, and the other one does the window. And I said, or is it the window here? which one do you get the worst customers? And she said, you know, it, it doesn't really matter. Some people are just bad customers. And she said, the worst part though, is that if there's a line of people and you get a nasty customer, they all get nasty after. She said, it, it just becomes like endemic in you. And that's what is being said right here. It said, um, uh, you know, first they're worried about him. Now he's getting worried and everybody's starting to worry. Okay, well, when you're in the bank and somebody's being mean to the girl behind the counter, you have to stop and say, I'm not going to be like that person because she said it is infectious. It, but she said the thing that makes them more angry than anything is when they just smile and say, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And they just, they don't get, because these people are there to push their buttons. Okay. And when it doesn't work, that gets them more frustrated than anything else. And I know that's true because I have a daughter that can do that very well. She, Tangerine, she used to work at Target. And she said people would just come up and abuse you. They just abuse you for no reason. And I can just see her saying, yes, thank you, thank you. And just they're getting furious at it because they're not getting her gall like they want to. But she's very good about that. Me, I'd pop them in the head probably and get fired. So she's laughing, she knows. I'm, I have a very short fuse, very short. Um, because of these things, Paul was determined that sending him, Epaphroditus, home was the right thing to do. <clears throat> Think over what is being said here. And what will be said in the next verse, carefully. See if you can contemplate why these words of Paul are so relevant to Christianity today. When we get to the next verse, read this verse and the next verse again, okay? What is it about them that shouts out, doctrine matters? In the next verse, the answer will be made clear. Life application. Often, what is left undone or unspoken is as important to doctrine as what is actually recorded. Pay attention to such things and then evaluate them in connection with how various churches act and what they claim scripture is telling us. In doing so, you can cut out a lot of unnecessary fat from your Christian diet. Okay, we're in verse 227, but read 226 together and think about it. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died, but God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. 
Okay, kind of close. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. What's so important about those verses? I guess it's just me. What do you mean? What is it that in today's church that is so relevant oh, to those verses? They couldn't heal themselves. They couldn't heal. He, Paul couldn't heal him. Oh, look at that. He couldn't heal him. I mean, to me, that just shouts out. Charismatic churches are full of wind. They're just bags of wind. They're out there making these claims over people, claiming healing in Jesus' name. I've been in the projects with people that attend these churches. They don't heal anything. All they do is they just make people more frustrated because they're not being healed, and the next week you show up and there they are. Or they're charlatans and they're making the stuff up like some of the people you see on Christian TV, okay? Paul could not heal this man. I'll probably talk about it, but I'll say it again right now. All the way, let me see if I do say it, and if I do, then I, I won't, I don't. I don't see any of the other ones in there, but Paul had an affliction that he prayed to, to the Lord three times, and the Lord didn't heal him. He didn't say, well, just claim healing in your name, okay, or in my name. He didn't do that. And then when Timothy was sick, did he say, I heal you in Jesus' name? He didn't do that. He said, drink a little wine, right? He didn't heal him. And he had been with Timothy for years, and the guy suffered with this affliction. He says, I left, um, uh, what's his name, Trophimus sick in Miletus. Paul just left him there instead of stopping and saying, I claim healing in Jesus' name. He left him sick. It's right there in the Bible if people will simply pay attention. It's as obvious as the nose on the face. The apostles were given the gift of healing when the Lord allowed them. And it was always for a particular reason so that we could see in the Bible a validation of something else. Always. It's not something arbitrary that the Lord just says, okay, I'm going to give this guy a gift of healing and he can heal everybody that comes up to him. There were many times that they couldn't heal. And there were certain times when they could. There were two times when the apostles raised the dead or, you know, brought somebody back from the dead, I guess is the way you would say it. Okay? It's never recorded anywhere else. Remember Peter when, uh, what's her name, Dorcas, Tabitha? She had died and we'll get to that pretty soon in the book of Acts. And then the same thing with Paul, when the, uh, what's the guy's name? Um, Eutychus. Uh, Eutychus? Eutychus. He, what's that? Eutychus. Yeah, you, okay, it was Eutychus. He fell out the window and boy, that, that is the most descriptive passage. You wonder, you know, it, it's just kind of talking about this thing and then it says he fell out the window. But if you pay attention to what's being said in the surrounding verses, you can understand why he fell out the window. It's because he was sitting in the window, and then it says that there are lampos in there. He's very, he's making a very, very clear picture of what's happening. He's in the only source of ventilation in the building, right? There are lamps, which are oil-burning lamps. And so all that fume is going right by him through the window. And so he's breathing that, and it makes him sleepy, and out he falls. But you wouldn't know that unless you're carefully reading it and understand. Why would he say he's in a window? Why would he say the lamps? It doesn't matter unless he's making a point. He's making a point that the guy was overwhelmed, not by Paul, but by fumes. And out he goes, plunk. And then Paul brought him up alive. So um, once again, these are important verses to understand, not for what they do say, but for what they don't say. Paul didn't say anything about healing him. He just said that he was sick almost unto death, and here we go. Speaking of Epaphroditus, still... Paul notes that he was sick almost unto death. Whatever affliction he had, it was so severe that those around him had all but given up for dead this guy. He was just 
He's a goner. It is a striking comment coming from an apostle, isn't it? Paul, like the other apostles, had healed many people. Both he and Peter had called the, here it is, the dead to life by the power of Christ. And yet there is no hint of this in him now. None. Instead, he had been unable to heal him, as is evidenced by the later words of this very verse. Epaphroditus had a life-threatening affliction. But good news came when God had mercy on him. Now, why do you think that was? Because he didn't say, oh, I just healed the guy. I bet you a million dollars, and we'll find out if I owe you a million dollars in glory or not, but I will bet you that they all got together and prayed for this guy. Sure. You know, they're saying, Lord, have mercy on him, because that's what it says. God had mercy on him. So Paul couldn't heal him, but they're out there worried about him, and God was merciful in the process. He was, in fact, restored to health by the providence of God. Whatever afflicted him took its course, and he was finally restored to vigor. Paul then notes that this mercy extended not only to him, but on me also. The tenderness of the words shows his love for both Epaphroditus and those in Philippi. His heart would have been broken over the death of the beloved brother and his inability to restore him to them. They may even question him. Well, why did you allow this to happen? You know, or isn't your apostleship one of healing? You know, who knows what would have happened? But it didn't. And Paul was greatly relieved by this. Should that not have been the case, Paul says, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. From this statement, it is evident that Paul had nothing to do with the healing. Nothing. If he could have gone up and claimed healing over Epaphroditus, these words could not be included in the letter. Further, they add a touch of confirmation that this letter is genuine and not written by any other than Paul. Otherwise, a miraculous healing would surely have been noted. The use of the accusative in this verse gives a sense of motion, sorrow upon sorrow, mentally provides the image of a wave after wave of sorrow coming upon him. The importance of this verse and several others in the New Testament, such as Paul's telling, there it is, Paul's telling Timothy to drink a little wine for his stomach problems and so on, demonstrate as clearly as can be seen that the healing claims of the charismatic movement are to be rejected as false. It is God who heals, not false teachers who wave their hands over others and supposedly restore them to health. Their deceitfulness is an affront to the truth of God, which is found in Scripture. Even the apostles only healed on certain occasions and only in order to substantiate their their apostolic authority. You're not going to see it at other times. Today, when I found out that my friend, Vanna, at the Thai restaurant, deafened her left ear for three months, and I had no idea. Last time I saw her was when I married her son to a nice girl. Anyway, um, when I heard that, I said, let's stop and pray. I put my hand on her, and I said, come here, BJ, the boy that I married. I said, let's pray with your mom. And we prayed. And that's all that I am going to do. I'm not going to presume healing. I'm not going to tell her that that is going to work. I'm, and I even said in a prayer, Lord, if it's your will to not heal her, help her to understand why this has happened to her. Okay? We are not the determiners of those things. And there are purposes for those things. But I would pray that she would suddenly be healed. And the Lord would glorify himself through that. Okay? I don't know what's going to happen, but that would be my hope and my prayer, is that she could hear again. Hedico knows this. I've said this in the family several times over the years. If I had a choice between being blind 
and being deaf, I would much rather be blind. A lot of people look at it the other way, they'd rather be deaf. I could not survive without hearing. I would be miserable. I love to hear music. I love to hear the birds in the morning. I love to hear the dogs barking, even when they drive me crazy. I, I love to hear. And if I didn't see, there would be a lot of things that I wouldn't have to deal with anymore in my life. And I mean that sincerely, okay? I just, I would not want to be deaf. And I can completely commiserate with her because of this problem. If she loses her other ear, then she's going to be deaf. And I would not be a happy person in that situation. Anyway, we all have our own thing. Mine is that. Okay. Um, uh, let's see here. Yeah, it is God who heals, not false teachers who wave their hands over others and supposedly restore them to health. Okay, these gifts ended with the termination of the apostolic age. If you disagree, disagree. Okay, that's fine. I have no problem with you doing that. I do not believe in the apostolic gifts anymore. That is why we pray for healing. Okay, we don't claim anything in Jesus' name's name. It is presumptuous and it is sinful. Okay, we pray, we ask, and if he gives, we thank. Okay, that is what we should be doing. If you disagree, that's fine. Now Christians are to pray for healing of others, but are never to act in a presumptuous and sinful manner by claiming healing. Such notions are to be rejected by those who hold faithfully to God's word and to the notion of God's sovereignty over all things, including the affliction of his people. Okay, uh, having said that, I'm not done with this verse yet, but I'm turning the page. Having said that, uh, yeah, I'm almost done. I'll give you a life application and then we'll be done. Life application, doctrine matters. Okay, before we go into our next verse, um, right now, uh, Maya, she's over in the Czech Republic and she does these Bible bites. And there are people, you know, I've said this during the reports, I've said it during the sermons, and I've also said it during the Bible studies, and yet some people didn't know this. Um, uh, the Bible Bites I used to put on the Superior Word website, which I don't anymore because there were so many, it was just cluttering up the website. She does. She takes parts of sermons, one and two minute, maybe three minute long sections that have a point of doctrine or something interesting, and she makes a Bible Bite out of it. And she puts it on a, a site, her own channel. It's called the Bible Bites by the Superior Word. Every day they come up on my TV. It's the first thing that comes up when I turn on my TV while I'm waiting for her to finish up dinner. And so I watch, she does two a day and I watch them. And uh, when somebody needs a point of doctrine now, I instead of sending them to the sermon, I try to find the Bible bite that she's done and I send that. And a lady this past week said, I didn't know that these were still being done. And I said, they're not by me, they're being done by this person, thankfully. She does a great job of them too. She puts in great graphics and stuff. So if you want to listen to those, it, it'll take you a couple minutes a day, Bible Bites by the Superior Word, subscribe to her channel, and then you can listen to them. And right now she is taking the parts of the, the uh, 1 Corinthians study on tongues. And if you're confused about tongues, I would recommend that you watch those particular Bible Bites because she's taken out really key points in our study so you don't have to watch you know four hours or five hours worth of study on tongues but if you're confused about tongues watch those and they will give you the succinct brief information that will tell you why these charismatic churches are completely wrong about tongues the main point is what does the word tongue mean no. language that's all it means okay it is so sad that tr the bible translations use the word tongues 
because by doing that, it suddenly introduces something into our mind that we think is something other than a language. It should simply say languages. Every language is a known language. It is not something unknown, okay? And that is validated all throughout the Bible. But just so you know, uh, if you want to watch those short, succinct things, go to Bible Bites by the Superior Word. I don't do them. They're, they have nothing to do with me. They're gratefully only done by somebody. <laughs> well, yeah, only that I'm in them. And, but they don't affect the Superior Word site at all. They're just something she does out of the kindness of her heart. And they're very well done. So anyway, just a little plug for her because that's something that she just decided to do. Uh, there was uh, somebody else that was helping with them and she doesn't want to do it anymore apparently. But uh, Maya took over and she's just doing a great job. Very appreciated. Okay, 228. Therefore, I am all the more eager, eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Okay, uh, this one says, Therefore I send him the more eagerly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Close, just different words. Okay, 228. Therefore, the word therefore connects the dots of the previous verses concerning Epaphroditus. Verse 25 spoke of Paul's necessity in sending him back. This was then explained in the next two verses. Now he sums that up by saying, I send him the more eagerly. It can be inferred that he didn't want to send him at all, but because of the sickness, he sent him back, and even with eagerness. What was right and fitting was this course of action. It's very similar to the epistle known as Philemon, okay? Paul did not want to send Philemon back, or Onesimus back to Philemon, but he said, he's my very heart, but I'm sending him to you. I hope you'll do the right thing, blah, blah, blah. It's a wonderful epistle. It's very short. It's very succinct. And it is marvelous in how it portrays Christ. It is absolutely marvelous. But we'll be there in, I don't know, maybe next week or in another week or two, we'll be through the rest of Paul's epistles, and that's the last one of them. So uh, we'll be there very soon. Anyway, great, great epistle. Um, uh, to explain it, he then says that when you see him again, you may rejoice. These words follow from verse 26, which said that he was distressed because you heard that he was sick. Epaphroditus' distress was increased because of their worry for him. Neither he nor Paul wanted that, and so he was, going to, he was going back to Philippi to give them a chance to rejoice. However, there is a note of sadness which follows from this. Paul says that I may be less sorrowful. Being less of something implies that the thing still exists. He is going to miss his friend Epaphroditus, just like he was going to miss his friend Onesimus, okay? But it was the right thing to do to send him back to uh, Philemon, and he did that, okay? He has been talking about rejoicing even in his imprisonment, but that rejoicing does not cancel out his sorrows. Instead, they are separate boxes and he, that he is packaged up. Okay, this is one thing that uh, I will tell people. They'll say, you know, I'm really lacking the joy that Paul writes about in the book of Philippians. And I say, well, yeah, he had joy, but he also had sorrow. He also had trials. He had troubles. He had pains and sicknesses. Okay, so just because you have one thing, it doesn't mean that you can't have the other thing. Okay, and when Paul writes about joy, he's not specifically writing about, oh, I'm happy, I'm sitting here in mud and I'm filthy and I stink. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that I understand that these circumstances are leading to something greater, okay? 
just because you're miserable, just because you have a pain in your head or a pain in your back at the time, it doesn't mean that you can't have joy at what Christ has offered. And too often we take everything in our circumstances and we lump them into one big package and we say, I just don't have the joy of Christ today. Well, you should always have the joy of Christ. Every minute of your life, you should have the joy of Christ. Even when you're angry or hangry or upset or emotional or whatever, you should always have the joy of Christ. Okay? I, uh, well, I won't get into that right now. I was going to make an example, but I won't do that. But you can have the joy of Christ even in the most trying of circumstances. But you need to keep the boxes separate. Okay? And remember Paul as an example. He had all of these other things going on at the same time that he also had the joy of Christ. Okay, so uh, remember that. I'll read that again. Being less of something implies that the thing still exists. He had been talking about rejoicing even in his imprisonment, but that rejoicing does not cancel out the sorrows. Instead, they are separate boxes which he has packaged up. The rejoicing was in the spirit and in the hope of Christ, something we should always have. The sadness was in the flesh and in the loss of his much-needed help in the return of Epaphroditus. The words then are reminiscent of his note in 2 Corinthians 6.10, which says, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He's sorrowful in one way, but he's always rejoicing in another, and we can have that attitude. It's not impossible for us to do it, but we need to keep our boxes straight, just like when we have, you know, theology. We have this and we have this, and as long as they don't overlap, you won't have messed up theology. Everything has its own little package that it needs to be kept in, okay? Life application, there is nothing wrong with being a Christian and being sorrowful. We are human beings with human limitations. Jesus, when he was standing at the tomb of Lazarus, wept. He mourned in his spirit or whatever it says a couple times, and uh, I don't remember the exact terminology, of, but anyway, and it says that he wept. And I was at the prayer meeting we have over at the real estate office every Tuesday morning this week, and he asked, he said, what? I don't understand that. What was that about? And I said, well, it wasn't that he was weeping that Lazarus was dead because he knew he was just about to raise Lazarus. He was certainly mourning over the human condition. These two sisters that are almost hopeless at this point. We've lost our brother. We'll never see him again until the resurrection. The rest of our life, we're going to be miserable. He was certainly completely overwhelmed at the human condition. This is why God united with human flesh, was so that he could experience something that we experience personally. He can identify with who we are as a human being, and then he can overcome that for us if we will come to him. Okay, And that I'm certain that that is the reason why it said Jesus wept. He wasn't worried about Lazarus. He was worried about, or no, I shouldn't use the word worried, but he was overwhelmed at the emotion of the human experience. And that's something that we all have. So we shouldn't, you know, try to cut that off from us. There's nothing wrong with being a Christian and being sorrowful. As I said, we are human beings with human limitations. We should always, and in all situations, rejoice in Christ and then the hope that he has our difficulties all safely guarded, excuse me, all safely guarded in his capable hands. And yet, we can also express the human emotions and frailties that God has instilled in us. There's nothing, nothing dishonoring of this in God. He created us to express ourselves in a godly manner in each of our emotional and spiritual states. Okay? Be angry, 
and do not sin. That's right. So we have these emotions. They are things that belong to us as human beings. We shouldn't say, well, I don't like to get angry. That's my release valve. If I didn't get angry, I'd probably have a brain hemorrhage and keel over, right? So we get angry, we get happy, we get emotional, we get you know sad, and we get all these things. There's nothing wrong. Too often people try to hide these things, and there's no point in that, okay? Some of us have our emotions come out in one way, some in another, all right? Um, uh, whatever. Okay, so just don't don't let your cultural ideas, if you think of the Brits, you know, the Brits are always upright and upstanding and they're supposed to never show emotions. And I, what was the movie where I saw that? I think it was uh, A Fish Called Wanda. I saw it years ago and uh, he said, we're all so proper and upright and we can never, you know, and I felt bad. You know, I don't know if that's really how Brits are, if it's just the way the movie was. But, um, you know, if you were trying to limit yourself in one way or another, you're only harming yourself. Okay, there are other cultures, I can tell you this, that really let out their emotions. I mean, when there's a funeral, they've really let go. I've seen some of those. And then you've got, uh, uh, you know, the Japanese are very reserved, but the Japanese do something to get it out of them. It's crazy. I was talking to somebody about that this week. Who was it? Anyway, um, hello, thank you. Um, that's our Thai food for tonight. Okay, what the Japanese do, and it's really annoying if you're in Japan and you don't know what's going on, is when Japanese children are young, probably till about three, about three years old, and you're at the restaurant, they don't do anything with them. Those kids can come up to somebody else's table and slam their hands in the food, and everybody just ignores them. They'll throw something at somebody else, they don't say anything. Uh, my uh, nephew, uh, what's his name? Uh, yeah, I don't want to say his name. I don't want to embarrass him, but he's over in Okinawa, and I got a video of him, and he was running around the house, and they've got these, um, the shoji. Is that what they're called? The uh, paper. The paper, yeah. The they got these beautiful sliding doors. They're called shoji, and he was in there punching all of them out, and the family didn't say anything, nothing. And after three years old, it never happens again. They become disciplined children. They're so disciplined. I'm telling you what, I'm not kidding when I say this. At least when I was in Japan, it was in the early 80s for six years, you would go down the street and you could buy anything on this planet from a vending machine. If you go down the street and there'll be a vending machine with hats, you go to, whatever. They're, they have vending machines with Suntory whiskey. You wanna buy a bottle of Suntory whiskey right on the street, you can go to a vending machine and put in your money. In America, that would be empty in three <laughs> seconds from high school students. In Japan, they will never touch one of those until they are of legal age. It doesn't happen. If they did, they would be uh, an outcast from society. That's Unless how discipline. What? Unless they're three, then. Three. If they're under three, they oh yeah, if they're under three, they'd be yeah <laughs> emptying it out. Maybe that's what they're doing. But what I'm saying is that there there are different ways of handling emotions in the world. Okay, some of them are good, some of them are bad, some of them we don't understand. But I really could never get used to the Japanese way on that. I could never get used to the Malaysian way on going out to dinner. What time you're supposed to go? It was impossible to figure that one out. But um, uh, yeah, just remember that having emotions and expressing them is fine as long as they don't violate the Bible in another way. Be angry and don't sin, etc. Okay, so um, we're going on to 229 now. But interesting about Japan, isn't it? I mean, it's just crazy, crazy to see it. Oh no! Oh, is it still? Well, you she she hasn't been in probably eight years, but did they still act that way when you were there, or you didn't have any kids around at the time? Do they have any gangs or you know 
Well, they, you know, they used to have, a Japanese gang is not like an American gang. In America, if you have a gang, they go out and they kill people and they steal stuff. In Japan, they look cool and they don't do anything. That's a gang over there. It's just, they, they express themselves like we're gonna be like the, uh, the uh, leather jacket Harley riders, but they don't do anything bad. They just, they, they take on a persona and that's how they act, but they don't, they're not that way, okay? They're very conformative in society. And when people are not conformative, they're really ostracized. It's, it, it just doesn't happen. So get it out of you before you're three and then fall into line. Okay. Um, oh, the Yakuza is completely different. That's actually an organization. It's not allowed and yet it's completely tolerated. The Yakuza, uh, the, it's like the mafia. Okay, it's like, I suppose the mafia in, in Italy is the same thing. They're an entity, everybody knows it's there, but they kind of do their own thing. And that's the way the Japanese Yakuza are. If you don't mess with them, you have no problems at all. They, they do their own thing in society, and there's really no, you know, we're not gonna mess with them unless they overstep a bound that we don't want. So that's, that's a little different there. But the Yakuza there are not like gangs here at all. They're a completely, they're like a corporation almost. <laughs> and people almost treat them in that, that sense. So it's not even comparable. Okay, uh, 20, 29, yes, 29. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor men like him. Okay, receive him in the Lord with all gladness and hold such men in esteem. Okay, and there, we're talking about esteem a while ago, you know, giving uh, uh, the, the elders that lead you double honor. Same thing here. He's saying that he was a missionary basically for Paul and so hold him in esteem. He didn't say double honor, but that's the point that he's making. Hold this man in esteem for what he has done. Not specifically for who he is, but what he has done. He has shown himself faithful, okay? So there's a hint of near concern here in Paul's words. He is sending Epaphroditus back after a great sickness that almost led to death. Using this as an opportunity to obtain favor for him, he says, Receive him, therefore, in the Lord. The therefore is what gives us a hint that he may not have been received back as he should have been otherwise. What may be the case, but which is left unstated, is that the divisions in the church could have had some agreeing with the sending of Epaphroditus, while others not having agreed to it. Solely as a means of example, we could guess that he was too young in the faith for some to think sending him was a good idea. This is just an example. I'm just giving, you know, this is not in the Bible, in other words. However, now that Paul has spoken so highly of him, and with his service almost ending in death, he is asking for him to be received with honor. Whatever the true reason for his words, he is asking that his return to them be with all gladness. Paul's words. If there were divisions about him, they should be dropped. He has faithfully served, and he has been willing to expend himself in the service that he was called to. Nothing was lacking in his performance, and, therefore, he should be welcomed home heartily. Further, Paul notes that the church is to hold such men in esteem. In the Bible, we are to give honor where honor is due. In the case of Epaphroditus, it was certainly due. He was to be given the honor of a true and faithful soul who has carried out his duties in a way which was worthy of note. Good job, Epaphroditus. Okay, life application. Whatever task we have been assigned or to which we volunteer, 
we should do it as unto the Lord, not expecting anything from our work except the honor of pleasing him. However, we are to honor those who perform their duties well, remembering that they need encouragement as all people do. In honoring others, they will hopefully be willing to honor our notable deeds as well. It's just, you know, one person being good, it's like the people at the bank. If you see somebody that's, you know, angry at the teller, you're bound to get angry and the whole line gets angry. But if somebody stops that and says, you know, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to treat this person like a person that deserves the respect of her job. The next person behind me is going to act in the same way. The line is going to be cut. It has to stop somewhere or it has to start somewhere. And it's usually up to somebody that's willing to say, you know what, I'm just not going to be like everybody else in this. I'm going to do something different. Okay. And, you know... Like I said to her, I said, I mentioned my daughter a while ago. She would come home and she'd say, well, people would just stand there and yell at you because something isn't in the, you know, the uh, pharmacy aisle. Lady, I don't work in the pharmacy aisle. I work at a cash register. That's all I do. Okay. I don't, I don't stock those shelves, but they just stand, they just want to abuse somebody and they take out their frustrations on the poor girl behind the counter. Why would you do that? You know, and if you see somebody doing that, say, stop them. Say, you know what? She's not working in that aisle. And then just be nice to her when you go by. These people are just people. They're just trying to do their jobs. Anyway, um, uh, 2.30 and then we're going to be done. It doesn't matter if we have five more minutes or not. We're going to be done because this is the last verse of the chapter. It is. So we're just going to finish at the end of the chapter. Because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. Okay. Because for the work of Christ, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. He's not picking on them when he says that, by the way, obviously, but I want to make sure you know, he's not picking on them. There was a lack that needed to be filled, and Epaphroditus was the one selected to fill the lack. Okay, there are several variations in Greek texts which are argued among scholars. You could see the difference there and here. Determining which is the correct and original is important, but apparently no variation is of great weight and does not change the overall intent of the words. The words, because for the work of Christ he came close to death, are still talking about Epaphroditus. His efforts in his duties probably wore him down physically to the point where he was without the ability to ward off sickness. It shows the mental determination of a person who is willing to put the needs of Paul and the work of Christ ahead of his own personal well-being. In this determined state, Paul says that he was not regarding his own life. The correct Greek wording is argued here, but Vincent's word studies notes that his choice of the original indicates to venture to expose oneself. It was also a gambler's word, to throw down a stake. Hence, Paul says that Epaphroditus recklessly exposed his life. The Greek word was used as a descriptor in the early church for those who took care of the sick at the risk of their own lives. Thus, they were the reckless people. Epaphroditus, that was all Vincent's word studies right there. Epaphroditus was so engaged in his duties that he fell into this category. And this was, according to Paul, Paul's words, to supply what was lacking in your service toward me. The wording in the English almost makes it sound like a reproach, but Greek scholars ensure us that the Greek carries no such implication. 
Rather, it was simply that he filled up a need which could not be filled up otherwise. Rather than a rebuke, it is a compliment. He was sent by them to fill this need, and the need was then met. Okay, so let me do that. I'll make a mark right there. All right, life application. We have one shot at this life. Should we stay in bed and get a bit more sleep? Should we go see one more movie instead of dedicating that time to the Lord? You know, I had that happen this morning. The clock went off. This is the first time this has happened in a long time, but I thought, I don't want to get out of bed. I got up and I turned off the clock and I went back and I lay down and I thought, what do I have to do? And I thought, I got to get that X commentary out because there's people that are up at that time of the day. And I said, Lord, I just want to go back to sleep. But Okay, should we stay in bed and get a bit more sleep? And the case was no. Should we go see one more movie instead of dedicating that time to the Lord? In the end, we all need a break from our labors, but the more frivolous activities we engage in, the less we are doing for his glory. Each of us should be willing to say, use me up now, Lord, this one life is for you. And I try to remember that. I say those exact words to myself every day. I say them every day. Use me up now, Lord. Use me up now. Because this is the one life that I have. And I was talking to somebody by email this past week and uh, I said I haven't taken a day, not a whole day off in um, since 2020, September of 2020. And she was so upset about that. And I said, oh, don't be upset. I said, I'm in a comfortable rut. Every Monday is like every other Monday. Every Tuesday is like every other Tuesday. It's not wise when you're working seven days a week and something happens where you suddenly have to fit it in there. That's very hard to do. When you work seven days a week, you have to reschedule a whole week for three hours. But uh, that's how I have it. And I like it that way. Okay. Use me up now, Lord. That's the way I look at it. And I think we all should have that attitude, even if we do take time off. We should be willing to expend ourselves as much as possible. Okay. And uh, so there, but I have taken time off. Don't get me wrong. Like there are times where I will uh, meet somebody and we'll go to Spanish Point for a couple hours on Friday. And that's not a problem because I've already done eight hours of work. So by 10 o'clock in the morning, I've worked eight hours. And so it's a full day. I'll go take a couple hours and then I'll go home and do three or four more after that. So I do get time off. I just don't take full days off. To me, it doesn't interest me because I, I just, I get anxious if I'm not doing the work that needs to be done. So use us up, Lord, and uh, to your glory. Heavenly Father, we certainly thank you for the chance to use these lives for you and help us to be productive in that with whatever situation we're in. If it's in a situation where we're laying in bed crippled, then help us to use that time for praying for others. Whatever we can do for you, instill that in us, Lord, and instill the desire to do it as well so that we will fulfill what we are called to do by you. I, I know that we can if you will give us the strength, the wisdom, and the understanding of how to properly do it. And so do that, Lord, instill it in us. And we thank you for this word. We thank you for how you tend to your people, and we're looking for the day when you will come for us. May that day be soon. But until then, use us up, Lord. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, let's back this thing up. We're going to go to break.